morning, Gretna. It's Pastor Rob. It's great to have you with us today. We hope that this will be a time that encourages you and strengthens you. And we hope it will be a time, if you've never met our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, where you'll be introduced to him because we believe he is life and life itself. I'm gonna open us with a time of prayer, but before I do some housekeeping, uh, we had some announcements on before we started today, and there'll be some more at the end if you want to see the kinds of things that, that we are doing and that we are involved in, ways that you can help out in this current time. That's a great place to start. Or you could check out our website. If you look up above in the screen, there are some links to, to our giving pages, our Facebook, uh, our Instagram, and our website as well. And that's a great place to find out more information about who we are what we're doing, and more importantly, who our Savior is. I'm going to open us with a time of prayer, and then these wonderful people are going to lead us in worship, yeah? McPherson clan. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful, so thankful for your presence in our lives. We are thankful for your enduring faithfulness and your love and your grace and your mercy. Lord, I I pray that uh, we will take every moment we have here on this earth in this time, every bit of health we have, and rejoice in the gift that it is. Lord God, we pray that what we do here today will honor you, that will bring glory to you, and will allow us to be strengthened by each other as we live as the body you are calling us to be. I pray that our hearts and minds will be open today to whatever you might have in store And I am thankful, so thankful for the mercies and the grace and the faithfulness and the sacrifice of your son. For it's in his name that we pray, amen. One of the most amazing things about that song is that uh, When John Newton wrote it, did you know that that almost every word in the song is a single syllable? It is so simple and yet so amazingly beautiful. And then Phil Wickham did some amazing things with it too and added to it. So what a blessing. Thank you. I wanted to start off today with a confession. My confession is this. I uh, don't ever help children climb things, ever. Ever. And you may think, well, why would you not do that? And my feeling is this, is, is, is honestly, if they're meant to be up there, um, they'll figure it out. And they'll make it there on their own. But if I, as I stopped and thought about that this week, why I didn't do that, because yes, that's the crazy things my brain does when I'm left alone. Um, I thought, you know, maybe it has something to do with my experience climbing. When I was about uh, eight eight years old, I would guess, I was uh, climbing a tree in a friend's backyard, and I was probably about, I don't know, 15, 16 feet up, and I just kept climbing and climbing higher, and I kept going up more and more, and, and I was looking at the branches, knowing that in the tree there were some dead branches that I should not have been grabbing. And so I was looking at branches going, okay, that one's alive, that one's alive, that one's alive. And I, and I saw one that I thought, that looks like it might be dead, but I bet it's strong enough to hold me. Can I tell you a secret? It was not strong enough to hold me. 
because I tried anyways. Against my better judgment, looking at it, seeing what I saw, and thinking to myself, I would love that to be a live branch because I want to be able to climb the tree higher. That's what I was there for. How high can I get, right? How far can I go? And my little brain said, it may look dead, but I think, I think it'll be fine. I think it'll be alive enough to keep me safe. And so my little brain convinced itself it saw something it didn't see. And, and the, the rest of the story is it didn't hold me. Uh, I fell out of the tree straight to the ground, didn't, didn't pass go, didn't collect $200, knocked the wind at, out of me and walked back to my house, unable to breathe, which was about three houses away. Um, the whole way, probably took a minute, probably killed some brain cells, which explains a lot. But, but because I did not see it for what it was, I was not able to make the choice I should have made, right? Now, you could say, yeah, you were able, Rob. You ignored it. And, and, and in some respects, I did. But I think it is human nature sometimes to see what we want to see, to see what what we what will get us what we want or to see what confirms what we already know there's actually a term for it it's called confirmation bias the notion that if you know something already to be true if you know it to be true then the way you view a situation in which that that system is applied or that that knowledge is applied that you begin to see it in a way that confirms what you already know and doesn't cause what you already know to maybe be questioned even if the evidence shows otherwise. And, and as a result, we kind of miss out sometimes on seeing truth, on seeing the, the true meaning of something or the, the true value of something or the true, true purpose of something, or in the case of me falling out of a tree, the, the, the true deadness of a branch <laughs> that should not have, it should have, I should have made a different decision, and yet I didn't. And so, over the next five weeks, we're going to take on a series. It's called The Bible Doesn't Say That. And, and the series is really designed around this idea. It's the idea that, that there are a number of scriptures that we have heard over the years that we think we know what they say and we know what they mean, but we really don't. There are sometimes there are things that we think are in scripture and they're not. I'll give you an example. Uh, God helps those who helps themselves. It's amazing how many people believe that that is really in Scripture. And there was a time when I would have believed, absolutely, why not? That sounds like a just and wonderful God. Guess what? It's not there. That's actually quoted by Benjamin Franklin in the Poor, Poor Richard's Almanac, 1757. Uh, although it's believed that you could trace it all the way back to the time of the philosopher Aesop, the writer of fables. What the Bible does say, though, in the book of Isaiah is that God helps the helpless. It also says in the book of Proverbs that if if you trust yourself, you're a fool, but if you trust in the things of God, you will be made whole and raised up. And that should help us understand that, yes, we are called to, to do some things to try to not simply stay as we are because God is pursuing us to move closer to him and to grow in him. But at the end of the day, 
We need God's help with every piece of our life or it will falter. Does God help those who help themselves? Yeah, but he also helps those who can't help themselves. It's not in the Bible, that phrase. This morning, we're going to look at one that is in the Bible that uh, I hear used all the time, particularly in times like what we're trying to produce here when we're gathering, right? Even though we're gathering differently right now, we hear it when we gather. And, and, and the verse is this. It's Matthew eighteen twenty, And it says, For where, the, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. That is a beautiful sentiment. That's an amazing sentiment. And the truth is, it's true. It's true that wherever two or three of us are together, God is there. God is, is, is with us and walking with us. And, and that's especially important for us to remember right now in this time when our idea of what it looks like to be together is being really stretched, right? That is true. He is with us. For, for me, it conjures these visions of Acts chapter 2, where the disciples, let's look at Acts 2, 1 through 4. It says, when the day of Pentecost, which by the way, we should be celebrating here soon, right? It says, the day of Pentecost had arrived. They were all together in one place. And this is the part that, that it conjures for me when I, when I first hear that verse and hear what I believe to be true about that verse, about Matthew eighteen twenty. I hear suddenly a sound like a violent rushing wind came in from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying, They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, I don't know about you, though. If if there were flames suddenly on people's heads, that might throw me just a little bit. But I, I, I do, when I hear that verse, my first conjuring of that verse, my first inclination is to go, yes, yes. When we are together, just two or three of us, it doesn't matter how many, God's spirit is flowing in between us and it's active and it's working and it's vibrant and alive. And yes, that is all abundantly true. That is all completely true. But it's also true that his Holy Spirit is present even when we're not gathered. His Holy Spirit is present when we are alone. It's the, the counselor that, that Jesus promised in John 14, right? He said he's going to send you, I, but I will send you this counselor, this advocate. And it's in verse 17, 14, 17 says, but you know him because he remains with you and will be in you. The, the indwelling of this Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always working with us and around us and in us and through us, whether we are together and we are separate. And so back to Matthew 18, 20, if we say, well, 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 Rob, it, it does say that. Well, Yes, he is with us when we gather. He's also with us when we're separate. And so we have to ask a question. Does this verse just confirm other pieces of scripture? Because that could be true. Or does it say something else? Do we need to take a closer look? And I think sometimes what we've done with this scripture and what we do with some others is um, we see what we want to see, or we see a piece of scripture as confirmation of what we already know, rather than what it's calling us to, because it could mean so much more. And in this case, it really does. But to do that, to figure all that out, we're going to have to perform something called a reverse contextomy, a reverse contextomy. 
Contextomy is exactly like it sounds. It's the removal of something from its context. We do it, we do it all the time. It's also called quote mining. Um, in, in biblical circles, it's called proof texting, right? Where you're, you're looking for something in particular and you're looking for the scripture to, to confirm what you already know. And, and we do it. We pull scriptures out of, out of context, out of the, the original scenario they were intended in, that God wrote them in, that, the, that Jesus spoke them in, and we lose some of that meaning. We do it in other pieces of our life, too. Um, many years ago, uh, I was out car shopping with Heather, and I saw this car I wanted, this Volkswagen that I wanted. And I said to Heather, I said, hey, this car is awesome. I love this car. Hey, can, do you care if I buy this car? And Heather says to me, I mean, if I were you, I wouldn't. Now, Rob was looking for something. Rob was looking for very clear answers. He was looking for yes or for no. And so what Rob did was Rob ignored the context. He ignored that his wife's body posture was very much, no, you shouldn't buy this car. He ignored that she talked about it on the way there. I don't think this is a good idea, Rob, that we should consider looking for a car. You haven't even sold your other car yet. And I certainly didn't pay any attention to the context on the way home after we'd signed the agreement and I had the keys in my hand and she was, her eyes were rolling and she was not happy. I ignored all of those things, both the before and the after, the context, the entire situation, all the signals that she was sending me, all the information she was giving me, because what I wanted to hear was, I want that car. And she didn't say no. It confirmed what I wanted to hear. And we bought the car. And um, I'm never allowed to own another Volkswagen again. We know where this went. It did not end well. We also do it in our, in our political world and, and on the news. We hear it in the, on the news all the time. We see headlines pulled, pulled out of context, right, and slapped up on a page. 48 people burned. And what they leave out, you feel like when you read the article, they left out the part where it said, could have been burned right? Things like that. They pull it out of context to make it flashy, to make it mean something it maybe doesn't mean in order to grab your attention and and get you to, to read further. John Adams is often quoted, one of our founding fathers is often quoted as saying, this would be the best of all possible worlds if there was no religion in it. I've heard a number of people over the years quote that and say that, that, that faith was not a part of the base concept for which our founding fathers um, established this nation. And, and I would say that, that there is, there's room to move in there, that, that it's, it's not as clearly stated that we are a quote-unquote Christian nation. I wouldn't say that, that they established it with that in mind, but I, I would say that the vast majority... Um, had a knowledge of the Lord and believed in following many of the tenets that he taught in his word. And yet I've heard people say, see, see, even John Adams, one of the founding fathers, said religion was a bad thing. Well, if you just read that sentence, you would think so. But let's perform a reverse contextomy. Let's put it back where it goes. The rest of it is this. 20 times 
In the course of my late reading, I have been upon the point of breaking out saying, this would be the best of all possible worlds if there was no religion in it. So he's frustrated and he's reading this. But then it goes on, it says, but in in this exclamation, I should have been as fanatical as Bryant or Cleverly. They were both speakers of the time that were known for their long-winded talks. And says this, without religion, this world would be something not fit to be mentioned in polite company. I mean, hell. It's a very different take, right? It's very different than, a, than I think there, that religion has no value or no place. It completely flips the meaning on its end from what we would have gathered from that one single sentence. And what we're going to try to do is put this particular verse, right? Forever two or three of us gather together, right? I am with you, Matthew 18, 20. We're going to try to put that back in context and try to figure out what it really means. Because what it really means is something far more and far greater. So let's read that. We're going to read back in context. We're going to read Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. That's not a good thing. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on the earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. And here's our verse. Where, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. You know, adding a few verses of context helps us understand that this, this verse, this, this, that again um, conjures this, this, this true sentiment, the sentiment of consciousness, and, and I guess on some levels could be taken as that, but it, it reveals so much more. It reveals that the Holy Spirit... And God himself is, is not only present in our gatherings. He is present in our lives as his people. He is present in our lives as his people. He is present in our communication. That's the first point I want us to get. He's present in the way we communicate with one another. Five words that I don't ever want to hear. Go tell him his fault. When, you're, when you are, when I'm angry at somebody... When I believe they have, as the scripture says here, sinned against me, and that's a whole other discussion of what sinning against you really is. It's not, if offense is not sinning against you necessarily. Sometimes when we're offended, we're offended for good reason. But the notion that when I'm angry with somebody, God wants my first response, my first way of dealing with this is to go to them and tell them what they've done. But I, I, think, <laughs> I think more often our response is something along the lines of, go tell five other people what they've done and hopefully it will get back to them. But, but the context of this scripture tells us that, that God is present in those conversations. God is present in that communication when we are willing to do just that. In fact, God says that this is such an important thing for us to do. 
that failure to do so, failure to go and communicate with one another is inhibitive. It makes it really hard to connect with God. Earlier in the book of Matthew, Matthew 5, God is is talking about someone who's angry with his brother and sister. It says, if you're angry with them, whoever insults his brother and sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. That's not very nice. So if you're offering your gift on the altar, this is the part I want us to hear in Matthew 5, verse 23. So if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled, and then Come and offer your gift. It's this, this notion that, that if there is a tension between us, it creates a, a veil between us and God. It could be because our emotions are still wound up in it. I really do believe that forgiveness is as much about the person doing the forgiving. It's a much about, as much about releasing your soul as it is about the person who is forgiven. It's releasing you from this, this anger and this hatred, this energy you're burning up that you don't need to be using. And God tells us if we don't do that, then we're creating a block between us and him. He says, go fix this, and then we'll talk about the offering or your gift or whatever it is you're bringing to present to me. We talked about a couple of weeks ago about the, the notion of a living sacrifice, how they're always trying to crawl off the altar. And, 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 and God says, yeah, I know, I know I'm asking much of you. I know I'm asking you to, to sacrifice much of who you are. Um, but part of what he's asking us to sacrifice is our fears. Our fears of having those conversations See, oftentimes that particular text, this particular one where it says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him. And then it goes into, but if he won't listen, then take a friend. And if they won't listen, take the church. And if they won't listen, cast them out. We talk, to, we talk about that piece of scripture as, as church discipline. And we almost never connect it with the verse 20, right? Wherever two or three are gathered, we use them completely differently. But what if it's less about church discipline and more about Jesus teaching us what it means to grow as his people, as his community, as his church. And so, and so this is hard for us to, to fathom sometimes, the notion that, that talking to somebody, communicating with somebody is critical to the growth of my own faith the growth of, of the faith of the person that you're reaching out toward who, who has offended you or sinned against you or something of that nature and, and, is, and is critical to the growth of the body of Christ as a whole. And yet those conversations are often avoided out of fear, out of insecurities, out of a desire not to offend somebody else. And I'm not asking you to, to just run off and start yelling at everybody who's ever made you mad. That's not what it's about. This is about someone who's genuinely sinned against you, you having the courage to open the conversation, to let them know what they've done for your sake and for their sake as we are all pursuing Christ together as one family, one body, one church. This, this passage also teaches us the Holy Spirit is present in our judgment. 
right? The idea of this testimony of two or three witnesses, it harkens back to Deuteronomy chapter 19, 15. And it says this, it says, one witness cannot establish any iniquity or sin against a person, whatever that person has done. A fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That first half of that verse really adds a lot of context to this and helps us clearly understand what Jesus was trying to say here. One witness cannot establish any iniquity or sin against a person. This goes back to our our confirmation bias. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but but I have certainly... um, I have certainly made snap judgments about people and situations. I have certainly glanced at people and said, oh, that, that, mm, they're up to some stuff. Only to find out I was so wrong, it was unbelievable. I was so, it was so wrong. When I was in high school, I, um, I, I know you're gonna find this hard to believe, but I actually dated somebody before I dated Heather. Uh, when I was in high school, I dated a wonderful young lady named Laura for about uh, two weeks. And the reason it was only two weeks is because Laura had dated one of my other friends before. And one day I met them all, because we all hung out together, it was probably 10 of us. I met them all at a soccer field. We were just hanging out together. And I got there late and I saw Laura walking back across the soccer field with my friend Joe, the one she had dated. And I in one of my highlight moments, flipped out, completely flipped out, started berating Joe publicly in front of everybody. That's my girlfriend. Don't talk to her. What are you doing? Are you trying to move in on me? Totally not true. None of it was true. And the reason that we only dated for two weeks is because Laura said, "Mm, I don't want none of that. and, And I don't blame her. I think if we're not careful, when we feel hurt or when we feel offended or when we feel like we've been sinned against, our first inclination is one, to assume that it's true because it confirms our perspective. But it isn't always the case. I really do believe that God says that he's, to to have testimony of two or three witnesses isn't just about increasing the impact or the credibility of your voice to the person you're trying to work with. I really believe it's also about confirming that your perspective as the one who's been offended against or sinned against or angry is in line with what God desires. And, and that, that second person, that second or third witness is there to assure that your motives the motive of building up one another, of pulling this relationship as family, because remember, these are brothers, this is family, pulling this family back together. That's in line with what it means to be the people of God. And, and if, if, we're, if we're gonna engage somebody who has sinned against us, are we doing it in such a way that it builds them up? Is that what this is about? Or is it about punishing them or making them feel the same pain you feel? You're never gonna make them feel that. And honestly, you shouldn't try. And so bringing that second or third person isn't about bringing somebody who is just gonna agree with everything you say. It's about bringing somebody with you that you believe knows the Lord and will give you godly counsel. 
that will not just whisper in your ear and tell you what you want to hear, but will give you godly counsel. So he is present. The Spirit works through that second person or that third person, works with them in discerning the actions you should take, how and why and what you should say and what you should do. And if the second person isn't enough, he will work through the church to do the same. The context here reveals something far greater in this phrase than simply his spirit is present in our lives. It's that his spirit is present in all of our relationships. His spirit is is present in helping us discern his will. His spirit is present in the help of others. His spirit is present in helping us communicate and grow. His spirit is present in our restoration. It says, any matter you pray for will be given unto you. I think we almost got a two for one here. I hear that one too, used out of context often. Anything you pray for in my name, two or three of you, will be done by my Father in heaven. We're praying for that out of context as well. These, remember what we're doing here. In this passage, the people of God have had to make a difficult choice. They've had to cast somebody out who's not listening. And they are praying, I believe, for reconciliation. They are praying for words to be heard. They are paying, praying for repentance. They are praying for healing. They are praying for a desire to pull the body back together. And so we are brought back to our original text. We're brought back to the Holy Spirit is present when we gather For wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Yeah. He's there gathering with us when we are courageous in his name and we are having the conversations we need to have. He is there as we are gathered having those conversations. He is there as we are moving together in his will. He is there when we are focused on restoring each other. He is there in every step of the way. And so what I don't want you to leave you hearing with this particular verse is it doesn't say anything like I thought it said. I want you to hear that it says so much more. Don't allow it to just be. Yeah, he shows up whenever we gather. Yeah, he does. He does but he also changes us if we allow him to do that because the spirit of God isn't just something that sits by and watches as we gather. He is something that participates with us as we live as his people. I would like to have the McPherson's come back up front and close us in a song today. You know, it's, it's, it's my prayer that if you have been separated from the Lord, if you have not been restored in him or come to know him yet, that today you will, you will do that. And if you decide to make that commitment to God, we would love to know, we would love to walk with you to help you grow, to help you be restored in that relationship, to talk to you, to work with you, and let you be a blessing unto us too, right? Because we are family, we are helping one another be restored in the Lord. We are thankful for this opportunity to reach into your life in his name, and we pray it is a blessing unto you.
believe. You believe? We believe. Let's close in prayer. Grandma, Father God, we are so thankful that you have been with us all day today and you are with us every moment, whether or not we are gathered or we are separated. Your spirit is among us and walking through us. I pray that we will have ears to listen and hearts to be opened to what you would guide us towards and the conversations you would ask us to have and the opportunity to grow together as your community. Lord God, I'm particularly mindful today of, of, with the recent announcements at Honda of, of um, how for many this will be, if not maybe just temporarily, but a life-changing event in some ways. And I pray that you will guard their hearts and minds and they'll be able to place their anxieties upon you and allow you to transform them in the midst of the difficulties. I'm mindful of those of us who are sick today that you would continue to heal them, to do miraculous things. I'm thankful for the opportunity to be able to just worship together in some way right now. And I long for the day when we are gathered together again. Thank you, Lord, for your mercies and your grace and your faithfulness. And thank you for your son, for it's in his name that we pray, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. May he grant you favor and give you peace. See you next week.